want the Republicans to wake up is... With the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Thanks for joining us for a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. This program is supported by listeners. And I am grateful to those who voluntarily subscribe to the show, including Carl Hesterberg, Deborah Gordon, and Linda Gray. If you'd like to help and you're able to, click on my website at peterbcollins.com, the tab on the right that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. Today's program takes a look at the dark side of human behavior, at political corruption, and the abuse by one human being of another over power and sexuality. Our music to introduce the show today from Joe Jackson. The song is called The Verdict. Did you do me right? Did I do right by you? When I I could do just what you say But I'm following my heart And that takes me another way It's not easy when there's no one In the second segment of this podcast, we'll talk with San Francisco Bay Area attorney Charles Bonner. He has taken a hard look at international sex slavery and sex trafficking, and he decided to publish what he knows in a novel called The Bracelet. As I said, we'll be talking with him in uh, a little later in this podcast. We're joined first by Nick Bryant. He is a freelance writer. He is the uh, co-author of a book called America's Children, Triumph of Tragedy, and he's contributed articles in a number of national journals over the years. He spent many years researching and writing a powerful book called The Franklin Scandal, which has recently been published by that powerful little house in uh, Waterville, Oregon, Walterville, Oregon, Trine Day. They also had the courage to uh, publish uh, A Terrible Mistake, Hank Alberelli's book that we've talked about quite a bit on this program. The subtitle of The Franklin Scandal is a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. And it's shocking on many levels. First of all, the allegations that were made against powerful individuals uh, centered in Omaha, Nebraska. And then the way the victims were turned into (laughs) creatures that uh, are very hard to recognize. 
but they were turned into uh, law violators and perjurers as this uh, incredible scandal was covered up. Nick Bryant, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Well, it's good to be with you, Peter B. I have to say that um, I was quite struck by your book, and I often, uh, before an interview, will speed read a book and just try to grab the central points and, uh, you know, conduct an interview that way. But I was really drawn into your book and uh, read as much of it as I could in the past week. And in it, uh, as I say, you detail these layers of scandalous behavior, of, uh, uh, you know, criminal behavior by those who run the criminal justice system, and a perversion of American standards, uh, again, on multiple levels. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to this uh, powerful and sordid story. Well, the Franklin scandal is about an interstate pedophile network uh, that flew children from coast to coast and pandered them to the rich and powerful. And it's about its cover-up by the uppermost level of uh, law enforcement. And we're talking federal law enforcement. We're talking the Department of Justice, the Secret Service, and also the FBI. Mm-hmm. And what drew me to this story is I'm very sensitive to children's issues. I've been writing about children's issues for a number of years, and uh, I'd written a book, which you referenced, about lower socioeconomic children in America and the impediments that they face. And I've written uh, articles on uh, dilemmas facing children in numerous national journals. So when I've got wind of this story that there was actually a uh, coast-to-coast pedophile network in the United States that was covered up by a corrupt subgenus of the federal government, um, at first I was very, very skeptical and dubious. Um, I mean, it's very counterintuitive to think that our government, the United States government, or, or a corrupt subgenus of the government, would be aiding and abetting child trafficking. Because if you cover up child trafficking, you're basically aiding and abetting it. And um, so I approached this story with a tremendous amount of skepticism. And as I started burrowing deeper and deeper into it, I found more and more corroboration. And um, It wasn't too long before I realized that this story was, in fact, true. And uh, at the the time that I realized that the story was true, I realized, I also realized it was, I was light years away because I felt like I needed a tremendous amount of corroboration because the allegations were just so shocking. And uh, as I said earlier, basically I'm accusing the federal government or a corrupt subgenus of the federal government of aiding and abetting child trafficking. So I felt like the bar was very, very high for me to prove this. And um, I set out to prove it, and uh, I spent seven years, and I traveled 40,000 miles on the book, and uh, I feel that I proved what I set out to prove. Let me add that you put your life at uh, serious risk, because uh, witnesses to these events, investigators, uh, met early, untimely, and sometimes highly suspicious deaths. The Franklin scandal uh, reads like a necropolis. Uh, every chapter, there's at least two or three um, inexplicable suicides or mysterious deaths. And um, and on in my investigation into the story, I have my life threatened. Um, and I really had to take pause and decide whether or not I wanted to continue with the story. But... I just felt that it, uh, that the evil that had been covered up was so extreme that uh, I really had to uh, try to 
put that book together to the best of my abilities, and uh, that's why I kept motivated with it and kept reporting on it even after a death threat, and, and a lot of harassment, too. We'll define some of the, the... These are not characters. These are real people described in your book. Uh, but Alicia Owen is a central figure, and I, I'm just curious if, over time, you developed a, a kind of... Uh, I know you didn't have that much direct contact with her, but did you develop a kind of uh, a, a sense of obligation to uh, get justice for her because she was... Uh, uh, Gosh, words fail me here, but she was uh, used, abused, and then uh, locked in jail. And uh, as I say, flipped from a victim to a defendant uh, in a case where she clearly uh, had no power. I felt an obligation to all the victims. Um, In the book, I interview a number of victims, and um, I felt an obligation to all of them. I, I told them all. I mean... A lot of people were very uh, tentative to give me interviews uh, because there was so many su- suspicious deaths um, involved in, in this story. And uh, But I felt I didn't only feel an obligation to Alicia Owen, but I felt an obligation to all the victims to portray their side of the story because their side of the story had not been portrayed by uh, law enforcement, state and federal, or the media. So... I really felt an obligation to all the victims and and to all the people that had been abused um, in the in this story and and it I mean the kids certainly got the worst abuse of anyone but anyone who stuck up for the kids or who tried to do the right thing for the kids uh, was chopped off at the knees also mm-hmm. so I felt an obligation not only to the victims and the people that had come up against the system trying to expose this, and I also felt an obligation to the truth, too. Mm -hmm. Now, Nick, uh, it's a complicated story. There are a lot of different people. So for the purposes of our conversation today, uh, we'll we'll try to streamline it a little bit and, and focus on the central figures in the case and invite people, hopefully, to uh, buy your book and and read it to get the rich detail that you offer. Larry King is the uh, real protagonist uh, in this uh, sequence of events. And I want to hasten to add, and I'll probably repeat this later in our conversation, this is not the Larry King from CNN, the uh, Omaha Hello radio host, uh, who's in his 25th year at CNN and likely to retire later this year. But uh, the name is the same. Larry King is an African-American from Omaha who uh, ran a credit union there. And it's interesting, Nick, because uh, I, over the years, focused heavily on the savings and loan scandals, the ripoffs of the 1980s. And he was very much like Charlie Keating, like uh, Neil Bush at the Silverado Savings and Loan. Uh, He took a thrift, in this case a credit union, and took it for quite a ride and was later exposed uh, as uh, the perpetrator of a, a 34 to $40 million fraud uh, on this savings and loan. What happened, Lawrence E. King Jr. Uh, of Omaha, Nebraska, ran the Franklin Credit Union. And the credit union was initially created to provide loans to lower socioeconomic people in uh, Omaha's North, uh, North Omaha, a very depleted community. And ultimately, he busted out the the credit union for $40 million. And 
Now, the credit union was only supposed to have like $2.5 million in it. So senators from Nebraska got wind of this. Um, and, and the credit union, credit unions are supposed to be, at least uh, federally insured credit unions are supposed to be audited every year. And this credit union hadn't been audited in four years. So King had just been able to rock and roll and embezzle for four years unchecked by any kind of auditing or, or, the, or the federal government. So the feds raided it in 1988 and concluded that uh, $40 million was missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, senators, state senators in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, formed a committee to look into King's looting because other savings and loans had been looted. And the senators felt that there was some kind of endemic corruption within the state's banking system. Now, shortly after that committee formed, the senators that formed the committee or just about all the senators that form, uh, formed the committee had no idea about the sexual abuse allegations. What happened there was uh, high-ranking social services personnel in Nebraska um, had gotten wind of Larry King's pedophile network uh, a couple of years before King, um, before the Franklin Credit Union was raided. And they contacted both federal law enforcement and they contacted state law enforcement and said that Lawrence e. they had evidence that Lawrence e. King was running an, an interstate pedophile network. And they felt that uh, King was probably pandering to uh, very rich and powerful people. Mm-hmm. And we should add that uh, as he uh, systematically looted money from the credit union, he was making uh, substantial contributions, uh, political contributions, including uh, a party at South Fork Ranch, uh, the Dallas uh, set of the Dallas uh, TV soap opera uh, that he rented for a party. Uh, and he was a heavy donor to uh, Poppy Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush. And he certainly uh, was able to burrow in to the uh, Republican Party elite and had quite a bit of influence, as we'll hear later, as uh, apparently uh, he was able to uh, call in favors from the FBI and elsewhere uh, to not only protect him and prevent investigations into the the pedophile events, but also to, uh, as I say, uh, turn the uh, turn things upside down and turn the victims into predators, uh, and uh, in in that way wriggling out of any severe consequences for himself. Tell us a little bit more about King, his lifestyle, and in particular, um, his uh, sexual uh, predilections. Well, King lived uh, a very affluent lifestyle, and he actually opened the 1984 GOP convention with a dazzling rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. He, he was a Republican power broker. He moved in the highest circles of the Republican Party. He had uh, extreme, uh, very potent contacts within the Reagan administration and also with people that would be uh, part of the uh, George Herbert Walker Bush administration. He, his life was, he, he loved flowers and his life was a bouquet of uh, charter jets, limousines, uh, glistening jewelry, uh, five-star hotels. Uh, King basically lived uh, like the richest of the rich on the plundered money. Mm-hmm. And um, and what happened, uh, so ultimately social services personnel uh, had contacted both state and federal law enforcement and said that Lawrence E. King is running this, uh, this interstate pedophile network, flying kids from 
the various areas. And um, they were simply ignored. I mean, law enforcement simply ignored them. And then um, when the subcommittee got formed, these social services personnel went to these senators and said to the senators, uh, Lawrence King's embezzlement of $40 million is not the whole story here. King is running an interstate pedophile network. And then the senators, although they continued to pursue the financial angle, they started to delve into King's exploitation of children. Mm -hmm. Had that Senate committee not formed, there wouldn't have been any investigation into King's uh, illicit activities whatsoever. And let's talk about uh, some of the local officials who were linked to King, including the police chief in Omaha named Wadman. And Wadman, uh, uh, according to your reporting and research, uh, was involved with uh, the woman I mentioned, Alicia Webb, and uh, that uh, she says he fathered her child. And this was all very carefully covered up, and you give a great deal of history uh, about Wadman. He had actually been fired as the police chief before these events uh, uh, occurred, and then was reinstated. We don't have time to go into that part of it, but uh, I just think it's important to understand uh, that he was powerful enough in Omaha uh, to uh, essentially force his rehiring after after that episode that led to his uh, his termination. So talk a little bit about Wadman and his relationship with Alicia and uh, how he managed uh, to keep that under wraps even when she became pregnant. Well, let me uh, let me give you a little background on this first. Um, ultimately, the Senate subcommittee hired an investigator named Gary Caradori, who was an amazing investigator. Mm-hmm. And the Senate subcommittee uh, got six of the victims to come forward. Um, and Caradori videotaped four of those six victims. And one of the victims he videotaped was Alicia Owen, and uh, she'd been enmeshed in this pedophile network since she was uh, an an adolescent. And she'd been flown around to various parts of the country, and also, and and all the kids that came forward described uh, incredible abuse. Uh, Abuse by uh, very sadistic pedophiles, mm-hmm. and uh, Alicia Owen was one of them. And these these were so, or, orgy scenes that were uh, orchestrated by adults, but included uh, uh, clearly underage uh, uh, boys and girls. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, uh, weird sexual practices and uh, homosexual events, bisexual events that uh, these these people reported. Yes, yeah, so Gary Caridori recorded uh, 20 hours of victim testimony, and the victims repeatedly backed each other up on numerous perpetrators and numerous events. And the senators were shocked that law enforcement, after uh, the Senate started, the Senate subcommittee started investigating the child abuse allegations, um, law enforcement, including the FBI and the Omaha Police Department, said that they'd investigated the child abuse allegations after the Senate subcommittee started to investigate the child abuse allegations and that they had no substance. But really, there hadn't been an investigation. Again, uh, law enforcement was, uh, for the most part, lying. And, um, but then uh, Gary Caridori videotaped the victims, and the senators uh, these Nebraska senators sent the videotapes to the U.S. Attorney for Nebraska and also Nebraska's Attorney General. So you had empirical proof 
of this pedophile network, considering that these kids completely, uh, very much corroborated each other. And, and, and you, you go into great detail in the book showing that their stories did match up, at least in the most essential elements. Yes, and, um, and ultimately that caused some of the toothpaste to come out of the tube. Um, the, both the federal and state law enforcement had to act now because they realized that the Senate subcommittee was going to expose this network. So two grand juries were formed in Nebraska, a federal grand jury and a state grand jury that was to look into the child abuse allegations. And ultimately, both grand juries declared that children hadn't been transported, that there wasn't any child abuse whatsoever. And in my book, I, I have the sealed grand jury testimony and most of the sealed grand jury documents from the state grand jury. And in my book, I show what a travesty of justice that entire grand jury was. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the grand jury format, but grand jurors are just regular citizens who are called into jury duty, and then they've been put on grand juries. Mm -hmm. And it's really up to the special prosecutor who's appointed to a grand jury to decide what, ele what evidence he deems is, should be shown to the grand jurors he deems is relevant. So special prosecutors are in a very, very... Uh, pivotal position to sway grand juries because they choose the witnesses that are called. They choose the evidence that's shown to the grand jurors. And in this case, this grand jury, the state grand jury that, cared, that declared that the child abuse allegations were a carefully crafted hoax and indicted Alicia Owen on uh, eight counts of perjury mm -hmm. um, and another kid who wouldn't recant on three counts of perjury. Uh, in the book, I show what a travesty of justice that grand jury was. And it was imperative. And then the state or the federal grand jury also indicted Alicia on uh, eight counts of perjury. And I show how corrupt, I show how corrupt the exactly how the uh, state grand jury was co-opted. And I show basically that what happened in the, with the state grand jury essentially happened with the federal grand jury. So it was essential that they nail Alicia Owen for perjury. She was the first kid that was tried. Um, the FBI came in and got the other victims to recant uh, their abuse. And victims were told if they went on with this story, as Alicia was told, that they would be charged with perjury. So it was essential that the state nailed Alicia Owen for perjury because it would send a resounding signal to other victims who had been told, if you stick with this story, you're going to jail for perjury. But also it would sanctify the grand jury report that said that there wasn't any child abuse whatsoever. And the, the authorities had already uh, flipped uh, this uh, uh, victim named Troy Boner, uh, who yes. changed his story about 18 different times. Uh, and, you know, was clearly an unreliable witness. Uh, but they conveniently used what uh, they found useful from uh, his modified testimony and ignored uh, his lack of credibility and the way his story had changed over time. Well, anytime you have the FBI coming in and saying that uh, Troy Bonner is telling the truth and Troy supposedly passed an FBI polygraph, um, people... People want to believe that the FBI is going to go after child molesters. I mean, people really want to believe that. I wanted to believe that. So it's very difficult to believe, or it's very hard to believe that the FBI would be covering up child abuse. But in this particular situation, uh, the FBI was definitely covering up child abuse. And the FBI, FBI went to bat for Troy Bonner um, and said that he was very 
honest and he was being sincere. Uh, Troy would later say that threats from the FBI in an affidavit and also uh, in other milieus, he would say that threats from the FBI and other uh, and other types of threat eventually forced him to recant his abuse and testify against Alicia Owen. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to come back, because uh, I understand the background you just offered, but I want people to understand the police chief, uh, Wadman, and his role in this and how he was able to wiggle out of any culpability. Well, at least one of... Uh, uh, there were several several perjury uh, indictments against Alicia. Um, there were eight, and one of her perjury indictments was uh, she said that um, she had had an, uh, an affair with uh, the police chief, Robert Wadman, and that uh, he had actually fathered her child. And that was uh, one of her perjury uh, indictments. And another perjury indictment was that she had been pandered out to a... Uh, a judge in Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, and and she also uh, fingered other prominent people too, and she was indicted for that. Um, so she was indicted for fingering a number of prominent people um, in not only her abuse but taking part in the, uh, the the pedophile network, and that's what she was found guilty of. And in my book, I really go into her trial and I show just how corrupt and perfidious her trial was. Yeah. It's, it's um, ugly. It can- it's really it can- ugly. And the judge, uh, uh, Case was his name, just uh, was relentless in allowing the government to object to everything that Rosenfeld, the attorney at the time, uh, attempted to do. And, uh, you know, Rosenfeld was prevented from uh, aggressively questioning the government witnesses and then the government just ripped uh, Alicia and uh, uh, her defenders up when they were uh, in the uh, in the box. Yes, and then uh, FBI agents uh, lined up to testify against Alicia and uh, other law enforcement people. And also, there was a lot of jury manipulation. I get into that in the book too. There was false evidence planted in the jury room that had never been introduced into the um, into the trial, and then. The night, uh, Alicia's history is one of the longest criminal trials in Nebraska state history. The state spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, Alicia was indicted when she was 21, and the state, the state spent hundreds of thousands of dollars convicting this girl in Nebraska of perjury. I mean, the state has spent far more money on capital offenses many, many times. I mean, it was imperative all stops were pulled out to convict Alicia Owen. So this cover-up, I mean, it's kind of funny. The the cover-up of this nationwide pedophile network ultimately fell on the shoulders of a kid in Nebraska who just refused to recant her abuse. Yeah, it's It's kind of an amazing story. Now, tell us about the Washington connections here, Nick Bryant, and what Larry King was able to, uh, who he was able to cultivate who he was apparently providing uh, young girls and young boys to for uh, sexual exploitation. Well, the Franklin story really doesn't make any sense without the Washington, D.C. side of it. Because why would the Department of Justice and the FBI and Nebraska's judiciary uh, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to prosecute a girl that wouldn't recant her abuse? Um, That doesn't make a lot of sense. But you really have to look at the Washington, D.C. angle. 
um, to, to understand what the feds were protecting. And the feds were protecting a lot of very powerful people who were actually compromised. Craig Spence, according to a number of sources, Craig Spence was Larry King's, or Lawrence E. King's uh, partner in pedophilic pandering. And Craig Spence was also a Republican power broker. He was in Washington, D.C., and he had a house that was in a very ritzy section of Washington, D.C. And Craig Spence, by his own admission, was a CIA asset, and then I did get other people to corroborate the fact that uh, Craig Spence was, in fact, a CIA asset. And he had parties at his house, and the parties would basically start out, I mean, uh, Spence's parties were like a who's who of Washington elite. Um, congressmen uh, would, would go to Spence's parties, upper echelon members of the Reagan administration, upper echelon members of what would become the Bush administration, upper echelon officials at the uh, CIA, upper echelon officials in the Department of Justice, all would attend Spence's parties. And the parties would generally start out as a straight political cocktail party, uh, where you would have power brokers sitting around drinking cocktails, discussing events. And then at a certain point, um, you would you would ultimately, someone at about 10 o'clock or about 11 o'clock, someone would fire up a joint or break out some coke. And then um, the people that were freaked out by that would split, and the people that wanted to stick around that were lubricated on alcohol would be provided with whatever they wanted to be provided with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm looking here at the section on Washington, D.C., and you say several former associates of Spence said his house was bugged and had a secret two-way mirror. They had attempted to ensnare visitors into compromising sexual encounters that he could then use as leverage. Do you have any testimony that uh, he actually did use this as leverage to control people or manipulate them or to yes. help cover up the uh, the case in Nebraska? Well, yes, in the book I talk about various people that had been uh, compromised by Spence. It's very difficult to name names in a lot of situations because everybody that was affiliated with the network, and we're talking about the kids and then the people that, uh, played instrumental roles in that work were all taken down. I mean, the kids were generally from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and dysfunctional families. And then they were turned on to drugs at a very young age, and they became drug addicts and molested. And then the people that were part of the ring, like the uh, black male photographer who I interviewed, and then someone who ran the largest escort service in Washington, D.C., who provided spent, spent about $20,000 a month on escorts, um, and to at at his uh, escort service, and uh, and King and Spence, he said that King and Spence brought him into their enterprise, and and uh, this gentleman was fully aware of the blackmail equipment, and 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 he said that Spence had told him that the blackmail equipment had been installed by the CIA, and Spence told reporters that the blackmail equipment in his house had been had that his house had been bugged, quote unquote, by a friendly intelligence agency. So there is some corroboration that the CIA was involved in Spence's blackmail operation. But yes, uh, in the book I talk about uh, Spence blackmailing some lower echelon people. I don't get into the upper echelon people because um, everyone associated with this on the dark side of this story is is a felon. I mean, it's uh, the kids. If a kid said, I, I had... If, if a kid comes forward 
and says I had, uh, you know, Senator X molested me. Well, it's that kid's word against Senator X, and this kid had has been turned on to drugs at a very young age and repeatedly molested, and then at a certain point in puberty, this network just kind of spit the kid out like gum that's lost its flavor. So ultimately, it's really difficult. I mean, when I was writing the Franklin scandal, I wanted to uh, avoid conjecture and surmise. So uh, although the names of some unbelievably prominent politicians have come up as far as molesting children, it's very difficult because of this uh, of, of it, it's this network's built-in protective mechanism, which is that everyone that's affiliated with it has been compromised to one degree or another, um, whether they've compromised themselves or whether law enforcement has taken them down for for various felonies. Mm-hmm. So it's it's when you when you've got the word of of a felon or a drug addict against that of an exalted uh, politician. It's like, as far as credibility goes, it's a first round TKO. Yeah. So it's really, I found it very difficult to name names, but I do get into some of the people that Spence had blackmailed, and I, I demonstrate that Spence did have the blackmail equipment in his house. And I demonstrate also that Spence's parties were a veritable who's who of, uh, of Washington elite and, and various power brokers, and also people in industry and also people in journalism. William Sapphire attended his parties. Ted Koppel attended his parties. Um, this was a huge compromise operation, and I think that that's one of the reasons why Alicia had to be found guilty. I think that uh, had this story blown up, um, I think the administration of George Herbert Walker Bush would have been jeopardized. And I also think of a very corrupt political system of uh, where the checks and balances aren't the uh, judiciary, the executive, and the Congress, but the checks and balances are blackmail. And I think that that would have been that would have blown up too. So um, in Washington D.C., you had the Department of Justice covering up, but you had the Secret Service doing all the dirty work. I mean, in in, in my book, I give accounts of the Secret Service breaking down someone's door and like holding a gun to their head, um, just the same kind of intimidation tactics. And in Nebraska. Um, there was a perpetrator, a pedophile, who was a, a multimillionaire who didn't want to do time, and he, and he saw that the, the Senate subcommittee's investigation was picking up momentum, and he reached out to the Senate subcommittee to make a deal. And I've got a affidavit from a um, Nebraska state senator that says that the FBI threatened to kill this pedophile, this perpetrator, if he talked. So you've got the Department of Justice, you've got the Secret Service, and you've got the FBI uh, really putting in a full-core press to keep this whole thing completely covered up. And you've got the media assisting that, too. I mean, uh, you've got CBS doing a hatchet job on Alicia Owen and uh, the Senate subcommittee. Um, you've got the New York Times either through, generally through omission, um, um, the New York Times jumped on this story immediately, right, when uh, social services personnel came forward and started talking to the senators. I mean, the New York Times wrote a couple of articles about it. But then they didn't report about it until after the this really corrupt grand jury said the, they, they laid off all reporting on the story until this corrupt grand jury uh, said that the abuse allegations were a carefully crafted hoax. Mm-hmm. And the Washington Times was working very hard 
to show that Craig Spence was engaged in illicit activities and was also blackmailing people. And that's and that's that is, that's uh, and, very unusual in itself because the Washington Times, owned by Reverend Moon, has been a re- reliable defender of Republican interests, uh, with just a handful of exceptions. Yes, it was uh, the reporter Paul Rodriguez who spearheaded the Washington Times reporting on. Craig Spence's blackmail activity, his connections with the CIA, his connections to various powerful people, his drug activity. Um, Paul Rodriguez was an amazing journalist, and they were actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for their uh, reporting on this. But the Washington Post just steamrolled over all their reporting. I mean, completely steamrolled over it. And the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times jumped on uh, the back of the Washington Post as they steamrolled the uh, the Washington Times reporting on this. So it's kind of interesting. But one of the people that come up is potentially compromised is a high flyer at the Washington Post. And, um, and I talk about that in the book. So it's possible that you could have had some, a very high-ranking Washington Post official who was compromised by this, uh, by, by this blackmail operation. Nick, uh, the... Uh, the, the things that we've discussed so far, which are an interstate pedophilia ring, uh, 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 you know, of all kinds of, of sexual activities, including some pretty perverse ones, uh, the use of underage children as, as prostitutes and the pandering that occurred there, uh, that's all very sordid, very dark. But the uh, most difficult parts of your book relate to satanic rituals and incidents in which these children who were being used uh, and abused sexually were witnesses to um, the, the murder of, of babies and other children uh, in their presence. Talk a little bit about these uh, sadistic, uh, and, and language fails me here to describe uh, what was going on at these events. Well, there's definitely some horrific uh, stories that are told by these kids, and um, two of the kids do discuss um, uh, watching other kids being murdered, and um, and a couple of the kids discuss other kids being sold. So, um, and then Henry Vinson, who ran the escort service in Washington D.C., who uh, says that King and Spence let him in on all their secrets, said that King had told him that they offered that service, that uh, you could kill a kid if you wanted. And uh, Henry Vincent just found that to be probably the most bizarre thing he'd ever heard in his life. I mean, he was just completely shocked and appalled by that. So there is some evidence that um, you could... The, you, you could do whatever you wanted to, the, to some of these kids, that they, were, that they were truly throwaway kids. If you... I mean, all the kids describe, or almost all the kids that I talk to describe extremely sadistic pedophilic abuse, extremely sadistic pedophilic abuse. And I guess that there were pedophiles that uh, like to take it even further than just outright sadism of cutting the kids or burning the kids. That they, uh, I mean, according to the kids, some of the kids, that they had witnessed actual murders. And um, and I do bring in studies uh at the end of the book, in the epilogue, about ritual abuse. Uh, because a lot of ritual abuse has been debunked, and I really understand that. I mean, I remember the 
satanic panic of the uh, 1980s or early 1990s. And uh, so I was very skeptical of that element. But I also bring in another investigation uh, by the U.S. Customs Service about the, called, on a cult called the Finders that was seemingly trafficking children that were doing some very sadistic things to children. And, and I, I start the book with that because I've got a U.S. Customs report that shows that this cult called the Finders was trafficking kids, and they got busted in um, Tallahassee, Florida. And the Tallahassee Police Department found child pornography in the van, and they contacted the U.S. Customs Service, which has a, a, a child pornography unit. And, uh, and then the D.C. police got involved because of, uh, they had an informant that said that the finders were involved in a murder and also, quote-unquote, blood rituals with uh, children. So, uh, and then the FBI got involved, and uh, there was a search, and, and the finders were obviously off into some uh, weird occult tangents. And, um, and there was the U.S. Customs and the D.C. Police Department served a search warrant on the finders. And ultimately, they found child pornography. They found that the, that the finders were buying children. There was documentation about the finders buying children and kidnapping children. Um, it's a really horrific document. And that's what got me started on Franklin. Mm -hmm. at, at the end of the uh, U.S. Customs report, it says that the CIA has quashed all investigations into the activities of the finders, and there will be no more investigation. So the six kids that were with the two finders in Tallahassee that were put into protective custody were repatriated with the cult, and then the two cult members were actually uh, who were being charged uh, with multiple counts of child abuse. And someone in social services in Florida said that one of the children definitely showed signs of sexual abuse. But they were let out of jail um, without, and, and all their charges of child abuse were dropped. Um, I, I lead off with that document because that gets into some of the extremely sadistic and very strange pedophilic abuse that is part of Franklin. But that is a U.S. Customs report, and it also shows that the CIA quashed that investigation, too. Mm -hmm. So, because in Franklin, although you've got the Department of Justice and the uh, FBI and the Secret Service um, covering it up, I mean, the CIA is always on the periphery of, of, of this story. I mean, mm -hmm. the CIA is not very far. And um, I make a pretty strong case that CIA might have been the prime mover in, this, um, in the Franklin Pedophile Network. Nick, there's much in the book, and it's it's a powerful, uh, <laughs> very uh, difficult uh, set of issues to explore, but I think it's very important. I think people need to understand the extent to which our criminal justice system can be compromised and has been. Uh, in closing, could you just briefly tell our listeners about the connection to Boys Town? Well, that was one of the hardest aspects of this book is that Boys Town kids were involved, and uh, I'd always looked upon Boys Town as a utopia for troubled youth. And um, investigator, the investigator, uh, Gary Caradori, he was the state investigator um, who found uh, four of the kids that came forward. And then a couple of the other kids also came forward. Four of the initial kids that came forward said that Boys Town kids were involved, and Gary Caradori had a leads list of like 60 victims which I ultimately worked off of. It was sealed with the grand jury documentation. And I just, I, I looked for the Boys Town kids that were on the leads list, and um, I found three of them. 
and all three of them corroborated that uh, that uh, they had either been molested by Larry King or they knew of Larry King uh, pandering boys on kids, and uh, a couple had even confessed to me that they had been pandered by uh, Lawrence King and actually flown around the country. So, unfortunately, you have the Catholic Church involved in the scandal, too, uh, vis-a-vis Boys Town. And um, so, between the... I mean, Franklin is really kind of mind-boggling in the respect that you have the the uh, law enforcement corrupted to, uh, to cover up child abuse, you have the media corrupted to cover up child abuse, and then you've got involvement of the Catholic Church. You've got the media, the church, and the state all involved in child abuse. It is stunning and uh, deeply shocking, but uh, it's very well documented, and I uh, commend you on an excellent job of researching and reporting a very complex uh, set of issues, very dark, and certainly uh, uh, things that are very hard for you uh, to forget and let go of. Nick Bryant, thank you for joining us today. This powerful book is called The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. It's out in hardcover from Trine Day. Nick Bryant, good to talk to you. Thank you, Peter. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic, and I'm inviting you to join the Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. Details at PeterBCollins.com. late great James Brown and that song's got a lot of meanings it's a man's 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 world and in today's program we've been exploring some of the darker aspects of humanity and men in particular men who organize predatory pandering rings who enslave young girls and turn them into toys for wealthy powerful most often white men. And you heard uh, the grisly story of the Franklin scandal from Nebraska. And we're joined now by Charles A. Bonner. We honor middle initials here on the Peter B. Collins Show. He has a novel out called The Bracelet. And it's a fascinating book. It's a, a quick read, very well written. But in it, are the stories and the threads of international sex trafficking rings from the perspective of young women who become entrapped in them. Charles Bonner, welcome to our program today. Thank you very much, Peter. I am absolutely delighted to be here on your show. And also, I'm very impressed with the fact that you are bringing this particular topic, the issue of child sex slavery, to your audience. This is what I consider to be the most important human rights issue of the day, and I'm very delighted that you are airing it on your show. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in these issues, Charles. Yeah. Uh, I'm a civil rights attorney, Peter, and I've been uh, a civil rights attorney for over 31 years now. And I 
have an occasion now to represent a young woman who just a few years ago at age 16 was kidnapped in Syracuse, New York, and chained in a dungeon for over seven months as a sex slave. She managed to engineer her own escape and get this man arrested. It turned out, and it came to light, that he had enslaved at least four other children uh, in his dungeon, built under his uh, large estate in Syracuse, New York. He was a multimillionaire. His first victim was a 13-year-old girl. He kept her for a year in a little shallow grave, uh, shallow well, rather, that was so grave-like she couldn't stand up Mm -hmm. upright. She had to literally stay lying down most of the time. He then came with the idea of building a dungeon to accommodate her, and he brought in uh, bulldozers and drills and cement and built this dungeon, which was like two... Uh, nine-by-twelve rooms built underneath his lawn in his backyard. He then uh, released that 13-year-old after three years and went out and kidnapped a 14-year-old girl and um, kept her for two years. Then another uh, young girl, uh, and ultimately he rode into the hood uh, of Syracuse and kidnapped my 16-year-old client. Mm-hmm. Um, she was amazed that he would constantly tell her that he was not going to allow her to be sold to Japan, uh, to the sex ring that operated in America and operated in Japan, and he was essentially her saver, her savior, and he was going to prevent her if, if she were to just cooperate with him. And, um, and Ironically, he had used the same memo with each of the previous four mm-hmm. girls. Um, after and, and you know what? That reminds me of the, the bullying tactic. Yes. That is often used, and my big brother used it on me by the swimming pool. Mm-hmm. He'd come up and uh, act like he was going to push me in mm-hmm. and then say, saved your life. Yes. It's, it's ultimately uh, what they call the Stockholm Syndrome, where the victim began to admire her uh, her victimizer, because mm-hmm. she believes that her uh, her savior, her salvation, her safety indeed, is tied up with her, her victimizer, and mm-hmm. often it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, when this man was ultimately arrested, um, and we can call him Jamelski because that's his real name, mm-hmm. uh, one of the victims said, uh, you know, well, what about the other people, the other sex ring people who who were running the girls out of the airport and and buying uh, these girls and, and giving Jamelski these bags of money that he would have as count. Why didn't they arrest the, them? Well, in fact, this guy was operating alone. Uh, but after we had taken all the money that he had, and he had quite a bit of money, he, had, he was a major real estate holder, mm-hmm. owning land from New York to San Francisco, And we took it all and gave it to these five victims, uh, with the exception of a small trust he had set up for his two uh, grandchildren. We left that intact. Mm -hmm. But after that period was over, I then began to ask the question in my mind, is there such a sex ring? Is there a multinational sex ring that is selling children out of uh, Japan and into other 
other countries for the the benefit of wealthy men. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it does exist. This guy was probably not involved in it, but it does exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've traveled to Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia. I just returned back from t- Tanzania yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, it's rampant. While I was in Tanzania, there were two reports in the local newspaper of two separate incidents where two children had been sold. Uh, the sellers were arrested, and sellers were parents. Uh, we don't know who the buyers and what the motivation of the buyers, but frequently these buyers buy these children, eight, nine, ten-year-old children, for sex slave purposes. Mm-hmm. The UN reports, the UNICEF aspect of the UN, reports that there are 1,500,000 children being sold every year as sex slaves. A staggering statistic. There's another 1.5 million that are being sexually abused, but just that number, 1.5 million that are being sold for sexual purposes, is something that we as a human race cannot afford to allow to continue. Charles, what you're talking about are human rights violations of the most fundamental rights that humans should be entitled to, regardless of where they were born regardless of the type of government in the nation where they live. And it seems to have eluded us as we try to evolve into, you know, more civilized uh, uh, societies over time. And we have to come back to the fundamental role that men play, and that men who seek power through sexual control, men who have money uh, and who seek to use that financial power over people who certainly don't have money, that this kind of predatory behavior seems uh, unfortunately to be uh, inculcated, almost uh, something that is is a rudimentary force that exists in, in humankind. Well, and that's the way it appears, Peter, because you see it in such a rampant way. However, Factually, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Human beings, over 99% of our existence, lived in a a cooperative hunting and gathering community where children were really revered uh, and protected. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, within the last 10,000 years, particularly with the, with the advent of agriculture, when we got into a competitive spirit... Um, we got away from what you may refer to as the divine feminine, where women were worshipped as goddesses. Mm-hmm. Every culture on the planet had some deity, some particular uh, female that was a part of the theology, a part of the spirituality. Spirituality meaning the way we saw the interrelationship between all living things, including human beings. We saw women as being very pivotal. When men asked the question, where does life come from?, the obvious answer was female. I mean, the, the, the popular notion that men are from Mars and women are from Venus misses the point. Is men are from Mars, women are from Venus, but men are from women. <laughs> and, and until we get back to the fundamental concept to understand that women play a significant role in the way we see ourselves spiritually, the way we see our cosmos coming together... 
until we get back to that, then these kinds of crimes, this disrespect of women and consequently the disrespect of children will continue. In fact, it's on the rise because now we have the the issue of money. Uh, this child sex slavery is part of a $10 billion per year industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, Sing- in uh, Singapore and Malaysia and, and uh, Thailand, uh, we were there just uh, a month ago. I mean, we saw the money-changing hands from the sale of young girls as as some appear to be like seven and eight years old on the street at one or two o'clock in the morning with lipstick, uh, uh, making totally uh, inappropriate advances mm-hmm. towards men with adults standing right by, either their mothers or their relatives that are pimping them. Mm-hmm. But it was rampant and routine to see uh, 12, 13, 14-year-old girls being led by some uh, gray-haired, mostly European men from mm-hmm. Germany, Sweden, uh, America, various places, going into taxis, taxi drivers turn a, a blind eye, yeah. going into hotels, the hotel clerks know that something is about to happen that is uh, unethical, immoral, and outright criminal, mm-hmm. but they allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. The police officers are frequently the abusers. They make money themselves pimping and selling young uh, children. Uh, and extract favors often Absolutely, along the way. absolutely. Yeah. So, so this problem now has taken on a dimension that is, is, I would argue, that's not really historically based. It is more based on, on a money culture that really got started with, with, uh, with this beginning of capitalizing on human labor. Mm-hmm. Is it also a, a sordid byproduct of globalization? That as borders have uh, uh, diminished or disappeared as as true barriers to, uh, you know, traveling from one place to another, that it's become easier. Uh, and also the, the, the magnetism, the, the draw of money um, is so powerful and that those who are most impoverished feel that they have no choice uh, or at least that that. You know, this is the least objectionable choice they have to sell one child so that they can feed the rest. That is the absolute fact. Poverty is one of the motivating factors here. Uh, You find that in many of these cultures, girls are just not favored. And so if if a parent has two children, one girl, one boy, the resources will go to educate the boy. And the girl is left with no education, no means to survive, and she frequently finds herself in many of these cultures uh, prostituting herself uh, because that's the only means of production she has. Um, so there's a fundamental change that needs to be made in, in re-educating uh, societies as to how to protect children. Uh, interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was recently in New York in March uh, speaking with uh, uh, UNICEF about how to protect children. And he said three things. Uh, One, that we must educate the children, particularly the girls. Two, we must make sure that we protect them from diseases. But thirdly, we must absolutely make it impossible for awful adults to enslave children. Mm -hmm. And it's that last point that he really emphasized, because um, you look at India, you look at um, the Dalits, um, these children are just slaves. They have no rights. 
you look at uh, these... And, and it's because the Dalits are the lowest caste in the uh, historical uh, Indian caste system. That is correct. Uh, you look at, um, here in America, uh, the people who frequently go out and become prostitutes to sell their bodies at a teenage age, at a teen, in, during the teenage years, are the kids who are from families without means. So poverty plays a big role in feeding into this greed that then men capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to take the profit motive out of this industry. Now, I'm very excited that a new bill has just been to, is being introduced uh, by uh, uh, representative from San Francisco, Leland, and another representative from Southern California. That would be in Sacramento. So in, in the, Sacramento. In the state Senate. Leland Yee. Leland Yee. Referring to. Uh-huh. And, uh, yes, and uh, another uh, legislator uh, introducing a bill to make it absolutely a crime to engage in child sex trafficking, uh, any mm-hmm. form of, of trafficking. That kind of law has to happen not only on the local level, but it has to happen on the state level, on the federal level, and it has to happen at the U.N. level in order to really have a zero tolerance for human trafficking, and particularly for child sex trafficking, we have to, I believe, make it a, a crime against humanity to harm a child, where individuals or countries who are guilty, are found guilty to be complicit in this, mm-hmm. will face sanctions in the way any other terrorist faces sanctions. Because after all, we're talking about sexual terrorism against children. And um, and they need to be punished and, and prosecuted the same way the Nazis were prosecuted at The Hague. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the United States has been dragging its feet uh, in signing the treaty for the international court uh, for what are, I think are unacceptable reasons. Yes, I, I agree with you. We have to have a strong advocate in the White House uh, for these human rights abuses. And I expect that of, of our current president because he was indeed a civil rights lawyer. And so he understands and has a sensitivity to these um, inalienable rights that all human beings are, are endowed with by the Creator, whatever that spiritual being may or non-being may be. We all have those rights, including children. Um, and so we then need to, on an international level and on the other levels of government, remove any kind of statute of limitation. There's no statute of limitation on murder. We chase down murders after, you know, t- 10, 20 years, and we bring them to justice. Same way it should be with these uh, child uh, predator kinds of laws. Um, and then I think also we need to give kind of a whistleblower incentive to the people. If you're in Thailand and you see inappropriate conduct and you take a picture of that person when they return to Germany or to America, whatever their home country, that person should be prosecuted. It's, it's inappropriate to have laws in America against uh, child sex slavery and against having sex with minors and then allow these same people to go to Africa, to Thailand and to Singapore, uh, to the Philippines or Mexico and engage in the same kind of illegal conduct without without any kind of legal consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if, if we could put together that kind of whistleblower uh, provision where uh, anyone providing evidence that will lead to the successful prosecution, both civilly and criminally, of these molesters, 
uh, then they also can be rewarded with any funds that can be obtained through a civil lawsuit from these predators. Then I think we'll see this problem coming to an end. We also, as we learned in the Franklin scandal, need to address the corruption in law enforcement and that many of the people who have the responsibility to protect these victims are predators themselves uh, or they are aligned or, or somehow allied with those who are uh, pandering and uh, selling people into slavery and then selling those slaves like their baseball cards. Uh, and this is a thorny problem because we've seen that the uh, so-called war on drugs is a failure. Uh, and, you know, my fear is that a war on sex slavery would end up in a similar manner, a, a kind of a quagmire where, where some people would be protected or, or, you know, would find justice. But at the same time, it becomes a huge cover uh, for the predators to continue their behavior as they pose as defenders of the law and protectors of the innocent. Many of the law enforcement people, as well as government entities, are themselves the biggest uh, victimizers. They are, they are the biggest predators, and they also reap the biggest benefit. Uh, this is true in, in every country. It was rampant in uh, Thailand, for example, where I was just visited, where it was, you know, we even went and spoke to officers who were standing within 20 to 30 feet of child pornography and little kids being sold uh, on the street, prostituted. And we, we asked them, what, what's going on? Why aren't you in, enforcing the laws here? We understand that there are laws here in Thailand. And uh, we received such excuses as, well, you know, that case that appears to be child pornography in that CD, that really is a fake CD. And <clears throat> even though the cover shows this horrible thing, when you get it, it's probably nothing in there. And and this one particular police uh, man told us, he said, we're part of a volunteer force here, and we have people in 50 countries, and we don't get involved in the politics of the country. But they have strict rules. And I said, well, who are you here to protect if you're not here to protect the children? Oh, we're just here to protect the tourists. Hmm. You know, that said to me that these individuals were part of the problem. They were getting payoffs from somebody to do nothing, yeah. to allow these crimes to exist. And we see it rampantly um, in, in, in many countries. Um, but you mentioned about the war on drugs. Um, we have a war on everything in this country. We have a war on terrorism, a war on drugs, a war on poverty. Uh, but have you ever heard of a war on child sex slavery? There hasn't been one. Uh, and that's why I wrote this book, uh, in order to bring attention to this urgent need to protect our children. Every species, from a chicken to a giraffe, protects the young, except we human beings. And, and it's not who we are. Uh, it's not the way we really treat our women. We don't believe that women should be just reduced to a commodity and children should be reduced to a commodity. There's a small element that believes that because there's money for them, and we have to eliminate that. We have to stop it. And this, this book, The Bracelet, has these five girls who um, were themselves victims, and they take uh, us on a trip around the world, and they shine a big round spotlight identifying where the dungeons are, who the predators are, 
and what do we need to do to end it? Mm-hmm. You know, and I hope everyone will go to my webpage, which is thebraceletnovel.com, or go to uh, amazon.com and buy the book. Uh, it will certainly change uh, everyone's perspective on this issue. And and I was touched by, uh, at the very end of the book, you have a page devoted to what is essentially a coupon yes. for free legal consultation for any individual, uh, presumably a woman, but not limited to uh, uh, gender, mm-hmm. uh, who has an issue of civil rights or uh, human rights. And in particular, I think you're focusing on on the sex trade. Mm-hmm. Um, has anybody redeemed one of those coupons so far? Not yet, but mm-hmm. we do get uh, calls up here occasionally and emails asking about how to approach certain legal issues regarding um, child sex slavery. I received a call recently from a man who um, knows a young lady in the Ukraine who is now missing, and he's afraid that she's a victim of a sex ring. And, and it's quite possible because quite a few young 13, 14-year-old girls uh, in the Ukraine and in these various countries that used to be dominated by the Soviet Union find themselves in this kind of poverty mm-hmm. and they go seeking jobs and they end up in brothels selling themselves yeah. uh, to people in Germany, people in England, people in Israel. Um, and uh, these, are, these are very documented cases. You only have to you only have to go to YouTube and search for child sex slavery Cambodia, and you see uh, videos of little six, seven-year-old girls themselves offering uh, sex to to adults. Mm-hmm. Or you can Google, not Google, but go to YouTube and put in child sex slavery Ukraine, Israel, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and you'll be shocked at the evidence that is there. Uh, it's just that no one is giving voice to this voiceless uh, group of victims. Yeah. You know, and unlike say women doing the women uh, liberation movement or African Americans doing their uh, struggles for human rights, uh, uh, these children have no voice. Mm-hmm. They don't have anyone to go out with the picket sign, and so that's why I felt compelled to write this book so that everyone could see that this is a horrible crime. We must end it. And we can end it. Charles, you mentioned Thailand several times, and uh, I've only been there once. It was in 1987. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, I was extremely naive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that Thailand had been a a place where American soldiers uh, went on their R&R breaks from the Vietnam War. And I knew that uh, there were a lot of babies born, and certainly it it was a, a playground for the American troops. But here it was uh, uh, nearly 20 years after the Vietnam War, and I was at the resort island of Phuket, and I was on the beach, and I had just rented a wave runner, and I guess that indicated that I had some cash, okay? So I come off the wave runner onto the beach, and this man approaches me, and he's there with his three daughters, and the oldest was about 15, and the youngest might have been 9 or 10. And he said, uh, uh, my daughters give really good massage. And I just kind of said, well, that's nice. Thank you. And he was very persistent. And he, he stayed with it for about five minutes, trying to persuade me to rent one of his daughters. And I was, I, I, you know, I, I was not expecting it. I didn't really have uh, anything prepared to respond. And finally, I kind of rudely cut him off. Mm-hmm. And the hotel where I was staying, 
when I checked in. They said, are you by yourself? And I said, yes, I am. And the the woman said, are you planning to get a date? And I said, uh, no, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be by myself. And uh, they had a, a rate schedule posted that showed that if you had a single room, it was a certain number of bot, and it was about double as many bot if you uh, had two people in the room. Next thing I knew, there was a security guard posted outside my room the entire time I was there. And he wasn't there to protect me or even to protect, uh, you know, a prostitute that I might have hired to bring in. It was to make sure that they got their money if indeed I did decide to spend some time with a local woman. Yeah. And so the prevalence of it and the, I, 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 I mean, it, it is called sex tourism and they have created a kind of playground, a, a Disney world uh, that is uh, completely licentious. And it does appear that everybody uh, accepts it. Uh, they may not be a party to it, but they accept it as just that's how things are done here. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. And I was, you know, I I've written about Thailand in the book, and and every country that I've written about, I've visited those countries, including Israel and Brazil and Thailand and. Um, and Ranked all India, of you India. said India. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I had, it's one country I have yet to go to India. Okay. But I am going, um, hopefully this year. Um, but the world now is a small village, with the internet and communication, and to be able now to uh, recruit people to Thailand, for example, through the internet, and they're not recruiting these men to come and enjoy their beautiful beaches, and there are some or their, their mountains or their temples, they're coming, they're inviting men to come to buy their children. And, and, and it's unfortunate this is happening now all around the world. It's not just Thailand. I don't mean to single it out because I've been in all these other countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, right here in America, it's a rapid, thriving uh, business of selling young girls up in Portland, Portland now has become known as Poenland uh, uh, because of the underage uh, prostitutes now in, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Our local paper this morning mm-hmm. featured a story about a man from Oakland who uh, communicated on the Internet with what he th- or whom he thought was a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. He rented a room at a local hotel, and it was a, a sting operation by the police. Yeah. And so this this is becoming more and more common. Uh, there has been some uh, recent activity. A group took out some uh, half-page ads in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, challenging Craigslist to clean up its act yes. and saying that Craigslist is the number one tool for sex traffickers uh, to find business uh, for the, the girls that they uh, enslave. Yeah. So we really need to resensitize ourselves to this issue. We right here now in, in Marin County, you know, just across the water there in the East Bay, uh, 30 miles away is the, the man who kept this young girl uh, enslaved for 20 years. Gerardo? Gerardo? Something like that. J.C. Dugard. Dugard, thank you. the girl's name. And just in April, a man was sent to jail for 20 years for buying two Filipino girls and keeping them as sex slaves. Uh, This is a real problem, is rampant, and 
we're not doing anything about it. I, I really think there should be a United Nations uh, force, volunteer force, mm-hmm. to do nothing but patrol and, and, and protect women and children from sex trafficking. Um, Charles, one, one of the passages in your book, um, I believe they're in India and one of the girls, and, and they're kind of loosely like Charlie's Angels once mm-hmm. they go into the field to try to uh, penetrate these rings and expose them. Uh, but uh, this man uh, calls this uh, uh, American girl a bitch and says, uh, that's not how we do things here. Yes. So um, how do we codify something on an international basis when we will have, uh, for example, Japanese say that we've had geishas uh, for centuries and this is our culture, don't uh, interfere. Uh, India, uh, as, as gruesome as it is, the caste system is a part of their history, and many people apparently, you know, consider it uh, contemporary as well. And also, there—it's a phony argument, but sexual liberation is used as a an excuse or a rationale uh, for uh, these events. It's the world's oldest profession; you can't stop it. And so, how do we come to grips with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and get beyond the cultural barriers that really are are a smokescreen for this kind of uh, subhuman predatory behavior. Yes, it's cultural and religion, uh, and religious barriers. And um, we get beyond that the same way we get beyond, say, torture. I mean, torture was a regular form of punishment. There, there was a period of time we have we didn't have trials if someone was accused of something. We took them behind the barns and we shot them. And there was a time when uh, if you were accused of being a witch, uh, you were burned. You know, they burned thousands and thousands of women. But we as a human species got beyond these kinds of rudimental, uh, these kinds of depraved ways in which we related to each other. Barbaric, barbaric might be the right is, word. is a great way to mm-hmm. put it. And we can do that now. Uh, we can say that on an international level, we're going to say that it's against the law to have sex with a child who's under 18 years old. And it's, it's against the law to marry a child who's under 18 years old. We can make that as our cutoff point. And we can make that an international law, just like now we have international laws against torture, against terrorism. And, um, and, and all nations who are members of the UN, they generally sign into these laws. I know we have some countries that are still not signing many of these laws. But we have to protect the children of the globe, and we have to do it with an international standard. We have to say that no matter what your religion is, you have to respect the law that if the child is under 18, it is statutory rape, and there's just no exceptions. We, we can't allow a religious viewpoint or a culture viewpoint to overrule these practical rules that will protect children. They're there to protect children. The ultimate question has to be asked, what is in the best interest of the child? To be married when the child is 10 years old, it's not in the best interest of the child. We human beings can now agree on that. Ages ago, when human, uh, human fertility was, was not the greatest, uh, uh, ch- uh, child um, mortality rates were very high. If you wanted to have one child live, you had to have four children, and you had to have maybe a very young wife. Maybe there was 
a a rationale of having underage children as wives once upon a time. No longer. You know, we've evolved as a human race beyond those days where we need to marry a 14 or 15 or 16-year-old child, and particularly, you know, a child younger than that. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to keep forcing these kinds of rational principles on all cultures through this body called the UN and other local laws. And we in the United States have to lead the way because we've been leading the way on cultural change for the world. We've been trying to set the tone. Um, you know, that's why it was so wonderful that we, you know, came out, at least the Attorney General Holder came out and said, no, we will not torture in America. That's against international law. Um, we prosecuted, as I mentioned earlier, the Nazis for violating uh, international law. Right now uh, in Arusha, Tanzania, I just left there, there are uh, trials going on against the uh, these murderers who who committed genocide against people in Rwanda. Uh, and this is because we now have an international standard for human behavior, mm-hmm. what is acceptable and what is criminal. And we need to keep a bright line, particularly when it comes to children, on that issue. How about the money? How do we get the, you know, there, there's certainly, you, you cited $10 billion a year. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of uh, off-the-books, uh, uh, underground cash money that is not being controlled, not being reported, are there ways that we can use the financial system to uh, at least cut into sex trafficking? Absolutely. We can, again, pass laws to make anyone who's convicted disgorge any of the ill-gotten gains, any of the profits, just like we did in in the case of the bracelet. Mm -hmm. We took all the monies from this molester, who was a very, he was a multimillionaire man. Um, we took all of his money, and he's now in jail. Um, and so that's what we have to do with anyone who's who's convicted. And any country that is found to be complicit, we have to impose sanctions in the same way we're now imposing sanctions against countries who violate the law. We we stop the trades with them. We deny them certain privileges in the international community so that they can understand that this is unacceptable behavior. And by doing that, we then broadcast to the world what our standards, what the human standards are, what the norms are of human rights. And anyone who violates these human rights will have to suffer the consequences. And finally, Charles, one of the things that uh, has concerned me is that in the United States, we now have draconian laws for people who possess child pornography. My friend Bernie Ward was a radio talk show host, and uh, he was found in possession of these images, and he's serving about a seven-year sentence in federal prison right now. And while I don't uh, rationalize, uh, I I have no uh, defense of child pornography or possession thereof, we've lost sight of the, um, the levels of crime and the fact that uh, so many people are able to get away with uh, having sex, paid sex, with underage uh, uh, individuals who are slaves, who are part of these international trafficking rings, uh, or even, you know, things that are less uh, identifiable than that, but just local prostitution operations. And it it strikes me that we have um, really lost sight of the relative uh, 
nature of these crimes and the possession of pictures has minimum mandatory sentences where often we don't even attempt to investigate or prosecute uh, these kinds of sex trafficking crimes, particularly if the victims are not Americans. Uh, That is absolutely uh, a part of the problem, the fact that we have uh, unequal uh, prosecution of these kinds of crimes. Um, We have to have a consistent approach to criminalizing this kind of conduct. We can't just single out Bernie Ward because he was a raging liberal and perhaps that was an agenda to get him, whereas uh, a priest who molests four or five boys as a serial pedophile gets no time at all. Uh, I have one case um, where I represented a, a young victim of, uh, of a Boy Scout master. This man was a serial pedophile that molested several boys, and he went to San Quentin for 14 years and we took whatever monies he had. Then I represented three young girls who were molested by their very well-connected female basketball coach. She got an ankle bracelet and was allowed to live in Hollywood with her uh, relatives who were very much tied into the entertainment industry, and her family was tied into the the political uh seen here mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So we have we have selective prosecution, and that must end. Um, I have a case just called in that I'll be investigating today against uh, a priest in the Bay Area who, again, is a serial pedophile from the evidence that's been coming in. But we read all these cases against preachers and, and priests, and, and nothing happens to them. They don't even go to jail. And we have other people who go to jail. Yeah. We have to be consistent. We have to say we have zero tolerance. We don't care whether you are black or white, you you the president or you a priest or preacher or teacher or radio announcer or lawyer or doctor. If you engage in this conduct, this is the punishment, mm-hmm. and everyone's get that punishment. Mm-hmm. And uh, since you mentioned priests, uh, the, the posture of the Vatican is uh, disgraceful and inexcusable. And do do you is it too much to characterize that? Well, I don't think the Vatican has a centralized uh, sex trafficking ring uh, of any sort. That they have behaved almost like that, and that by uh, routinely covering up and uh, hu- using huge sums of money to uh, pay off victims, without uh, really correcting the problems in the management of individual priests and also by failing to uh, honor secular laws and claiming that if you wear a Roman collar, you're not subject to the same criminal jurisdiction as somebody who does not. Yeah, as, as a human species, a human race, we can't uh, tolerate, we can't afford these kinds of exceptions to criminal behavior, that because of a particular station in life, you will be exempt from penalties for engaging in this kind of of abuse of children. And uh, the Catholic Church and the Vatican, you know, really has a lot of explaining to do why so many uh, people in their particular uh, society are now uh, accused, and many have been convicted, of molesting children. And it's not just priests. I mean, I've had several cases against preachers. Um, 
and um, all kinds of pe- people, doctors. I mean, so it's not just one profession, uh, but these are the people you expect to really protect children and understand the importance of children. Uh, so it's even more alarming when we see uh, people in these kinds of positions that harm children. Just recently here in, uh, on the East Coast, there's a, a pediatrician who's, uh, who has now been criminally charged with molesting scores of his young patients. Mm-hmm. It's the case in, um, in, um, in Delaware right now. Um, and so, again, we have to emphasize the zero tolerance, and we have to protect the children no matter what. Charles, it's a real pleasure to meet you, and um, I'll, I'll just tell you that I rarely uh, interview novelists because uh, I tend to deal with nonfiction books and uh, articles and journalists and that sort of thing. But I really want to recommend your book because not only is it interesting and I, I think you do a good job with the characters, what you do in this uh, novel form is uh, expose the elements of these international rings, the way they operate, and in particular, the people who patronize them. Because without patrons, there would be no market. Absolutely. And there would be, uh, th- this, this behavior would not occur. Exactly. And so uh, I want to recommend your book to my listeners, and I hope that people will follow your work and uh, support your efforts to pass new laws, at, at minimum, in the United States, and, uh, you know, we've, we've tightened up our borders, we think, to uh, prevent uh, so-called terrorists from entering our country. And certainly there's a lot that we can do within the existing regulatory and enforcement frameworks to reduce the prevalence of these crimes. And the first thing we need to do is make people aware of the extent of the problem and get them to commit Uh, just as fellow human beings, to honor the human rights of every individual in this world. Well said. And uh, that was the intent of the book. It's it's deliberately fictionalized so that we could take license and take true facts and put them in true situations. So it's it's what we call the true fiction. Mm -hmm. It's fiction based on many true facts so that people can raise these discussions among themselves. Is this really happening? Uh, and in in England, is it really happening in Germany? Is it really happening in San Francisco? Uh, even though I mentioned a couple of countries two or three times, there is much of this sex, a sexual predator conduct going on in San Francisco and Los Angeles as it is in Thailand. Well, okay. we're, we we don't mention exactly where I'm located here for yes. my own uh, yes. privacy purposes. Yes, but right down the street mm-hmm. are uh, within four blocks of here mm-hmm. are three massage parlors. Yeah that are populated by Mm non-Americans, and I don't know their situations, um, but I see them pop in and out of there once in a while, and I just have to suspect that they are here under duress, that at minimum they are working to pay off the cost of their emigration to the United States to a patron or a master of some sort. And so these are not free people uh, who are right here in our own communities, and we tolerate it, and then say, oh, those damn ties, you know, look what they do. But we all really are a party to this because uh, it, it's occurring and we're not oblivious to it. Yes, and we must do something about it. We can't let this happen on our watch and in our name. 
Charles A. Bonner, thank you for joining us. The book is called The Bracelet. Pick it up and check it out. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me an email. Let me know what you think. Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling